Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, here to navigate the high seas of global politics as we do twice a month. Boy, the waters are dangerous today, more than they've ever been since we've started doing Altamar. And we're going to navigate them with Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary and one of the strongest voices on the economic impacts of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We've all been riveted by the disastrous news from Ukraine, the cowardly attacks on civilians, the bravery of Ukrainian fighters. And today we're going to discuss the impact of sanctions on the global economy, the impact of those sanctions on inflation and the geopolitical implications that go way beyond Russia itself. So, Peter, let's dive a bit into the U.S. and other countries' sanctions themselves. These have never been tried before, and they're, just for reference, far more isolating and strangling than the half-century of sanctions on Cuba or the ones unleashed on Iran's economy. And let's remember, neither of these sanctions regimes worked very well. In Cuba, Castro's Communist Party is still in control, and Iran today is closer than ever to a nuclear weapons. But the sanctions on Russia are really unprecedented, and the strongest blow was dealt very, very quickly when they froze the assets of Russia's central bank and the largest Russian sovereign wealth fund. Without reserves, the ruble fell to historic lows, remains low. And to further isolate Russia, many countries have expelled Russian banks from SWIFT services and have targeted specific sanctions on top banks, on key Russian oligarchs. We will talk a little bit about those later, as well as on President Putin and his inner circle, a punishment that had so far only been reserved for King Jong-un and Bashar al-Assad in Syria. But Muni, what, what's interesting about this is that the reaction and the sanctions are much more than just being financial. They also include trade and, and project restrictions. So on the trade restrictions, we've seen trade now being restricted on all types of products, which include sensitive products, but also on commodities. And we've seen the project restrictions on energy and tech exports to Russia. And of course, the famous suspension by Germany of the Nord Stream pipeline. Western businesses have also like begun to walk out of Russia. Not everybody, but amazingly, a lot of Western businesses, whether they're German supermarkets or the European Union banning the export of luxury goods worth more than 300 euros, hitting big spending Russian elites especially hard. Russia, of course, has responded in kind, issuing sanctions against Biden and a whole list of U.S. officials. But the result is a painful, painful economic contraction that is hurting Russian peoples, we've all seen pictures of Russians standing in lines in front of ATMs and consumer goods that are increasingly difficult to attain in supermarkets or in department stores. But we remain most heartbroken and in awe of the Ukrainian people and their leader, President Vladimir Zelensky. And today, Taya is going to talk more about the toll on ordinary Russians, students, artists, professionals, families, that additional covering of human pain that not only happening in Ukraine, but also Russia itself of the senseless war. Hi, I'm Tia Ivanovich, and this is Tastic, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. This episode is a really difficult one. We're looking at the economics of a brutal war and an 18th century power grab in a 21st century world. This is the first war that will be covered on TikTok by super empowered individuals armed with only smartphones. So acts of brutality will be documented and broadcasted worldwide without really any editors or filters. 
And on the very first day of the war, we saw invading Russian tank units unexpectedly being exposed by Google Maps because Google wanted to alert drivers that the Russian armor was causing traffic jams. So very different kind of world. And Tom Friedman of the New York Times dubbed it World War Wired, the first war in a totally interconnected world. Today, I want to really take a look at the effects of the war and the sanctions on ordinary Russia. Russia's use is overwhelmingly opposed to the war, and they call it Putin's war. The clear generational divide has spurred posts on social media, including, which is very interesting, from the sons and daughters of Russian oligarchs, enriched, those oligarchs were enriched by invested Putin. So in an Instagram story, Sofia Abramovich, the daughter of the famous Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich, shared a post with the caption, quote, the biggest and most successful lie of the Kremlin's propaganda is that most Russians stand with Putin. Also, the daughter of Putin's press secretary, one of his closest aides, Dmitry Peskov, also posted on Instagram stories, quote, no to war. These sanctions have hit Russia's economy, but of course that means that they've hit ordinary Russians especially hard. And aside from sanctions on luxury goods over $300, Peter, you mentioned, Google also cut off payments for YouTube services in Russia, meaning that your creators and socialites can no longer generate any income from viewers inside the country. Many people in Russia who worked for foreign companies have been very anxious about being able to receive pay because the first batch of key Russian banks has been booted from the interbank SWIFT system to target oil and gas profits. So a similar anxiety has spread to those outside of Russia who receive payments from within the country, for instance, for remote tutoring or freelance work. And Russian tour operators say the number of tourists outside the country may be over 150,000, and they're completely stranded and can't get back. So everyday Russians are seeing their savings wiped out, their lives changed. And yes, it's less of a headline story because we're very focused, as we should, on Ukraine and Ukrainians that are experiencing even worse atrocities. But I'm curious what you think about this. Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let me know your thoughts. Absolutely, Thea. Everyday Russians are also victims of Putin. And the damage to Russia's economy is gigantic. And Russia, remember, was really not economically strong in the first place and has been significantly wounded and will get worse. Now, just again for reference, 22nd economy in the world. And as reported by our partners at Brink, has the GDP the size of, wait for it, Ohio, while being less competitive than Ohio. So power-hungry Putin really does not have power status, it seems. Yeah, I mean, that's an amazing fact, Mooney, the, the size of Ohio. I've heard the size of Portugal, and but even Ohio is more impressive. It's Ohio this time, for sure. But what's so interesting about these sanctions is that they sort of, not only because they feel morally right, but the implications that they have on the rest of the world. I mean, you see the implications directly on Europe, because Europe depends so much on Russian oil and gas. The world depends on Russian and Ukrainian wheat, sunflower oil, and other commodities, whether it's from neon gas to base materials such as nickel, aluminum, copper. We're already getting articles in newspapers about the incredible rise in food prices that we're going to be expecting. And the geopolitical risk of sanctions is almost more to talk about with China than there is about Russia, because can you imagine what will happen if the same types of sanctions are applied on Beijing 
after an invasion of Taiwan, Beijing is so much more integrated with the world economy than Russia is. So one can see how the conflict might even benefit also China, because there is a theory that at some point China is going to walk in and mediate this conflict, because one thing that China doesn't like is it doesn't like instability in the world and that China will want to mediate and they're going to come out this sort of unlikely heroes. So anyway, I think there's just lots of different types of worldwide global ramifications that can be seen with this that go beyond even sort of the theater of war. And one of those that I didn't mention so far ramifications is the risk of increasing inflation coming out of the rising price of oil and other commodities. And our guest, Larry Summers, has been pretty outspoken on that subject and on the strategic effect of sanctions. So this is a good time to introduce him for the first time on Altamar. Larry Summers served as the Secretary of the Treasury for the United States under President Clinton and the Director of the National Economic Council for President Obama and is also the former president of Harvard University. Summers chairs the boards of many prestigious economic institutions, such as the Center for Global Development, and serves as vice chair of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He's a contributor to Bloomberg's Wall Street Week and a contributing columnist to the Washington Post. He's regularly recognized as one of the world's most influential thinkers, whether it's by Time, Magazine, Foreign Policy, Prospect, or The Economist, among many others. Secretary Larry Summers, welcome to Altamar. It's a pleasure to have you on board with us. Glad to be with you. So let me just begin real broadly. We, we've got a lot of questions for you, but what's your assessment on the toll this war is going to have on the global economy? You've been particularly outspoken about a lot of issues having to do with the inflationary aspects, but give, give us your sense of the effect on the global economy. I think it's going to serve its purpose. I think it's going to be devastating to the Russian economy. I think the war is going to have adverse consequences for energy prices and therefore inflation. I think it's going to have adverse consequences for wheat prices, grain prices, food prices that could prove consequential in many developing countries. But I think the consequences are mostly of the war, not of the sanctions regime. And I think if the price of freedom is higher gasoline prices, that is a price that we should surely pay. You know, there's a lot of talk about the sanctions, but you know, we've had sanctions on Cuba. We've had sanctions on Iran. These are unprecedented in scope. Give us a little bit of the sense of the breadth and depth of these sanctions. To some extent, these are unprecedented sanctions in their depth and breadth. Even more, they're unprecedented sanctions in their target. Russia is the 11th largest economy in the world. Russia has a foreign reserve level and a degree of financial integration unlike that of other countries. There are no Cuban oligarchs living around the world. There are no great North Korean or Iranian fortunes that are being the basis for European lifestyles. So the big difference is that we're doing major league sanctions to a much more major league target than has been the case historically, because traditionally major economies have not done as much to become pariahs as Russia has. The examples that are more relevant are the kinds of 
blockades that Britain sought to place on Germany during the First World War, or some of the things that were done vis-a-vis Japan in the uh, prelude to the Second World War. And what do you expect will happen in the coming weeks and months to Russia's economy, barring, a, of course, some type of a diplomatic solution? But if there isn't one, how do we, who are unlike you, who read these economic, how do we know if this is working? I think you're going to see a modified implosion of the Russian economy. GDP will be down in a depression kind of way. You'll see a larger number of bottlenecks. You're likely to see high, if not hyperinflation in Russia. I think the question that's a very difficult one to gauge is about what the political impact will be in Russia. Will the impact, as we hope, be by imposing pain to discourage outrageous adventurism by the Russians? Or will it be to drive a solidarity that might not otherwise be present between the Russian people and President Putin? And that's a very, very hard question to know the answer to. But this is going to do substantial economic damage to Russia. I don't think over the relevant horizon, if this was going to be a five-year war, the strength of the Russian economy would influence its ability to wage this war. I think its capacity to wage this war is more going to be determined by considerations of military morale, by considerations of inventories of weapons and the like. Secretary Summers, it's a pleasure to have you here. And I have a question about some people believe that these unprecedented sanctions, along with the also unprecedented military support to border countries by NATO, is this combination equivalent to a declaration of an economic world war? I think the term economic world war is an overdone term. To start with, I think economic wars are different from shooting wars in their degree of destructive power. I think that this is as serious a conflict as we have had in Europe, of course, since the Second World War. Even on the most pessimistic casualty figures, as tragic and horrible as this is, it doesn't approach the casualties associated with the Iran-Iraq war. It doesn't approach the casualty levels associated with a number of conflicts that have taken place on the African continent. What is salient about this is the naked character of the aggression in Europe. And what is salient about this is the potential degree of great power involvement, and the possibility, albeit I think still remote, of extreme escalation. Those would be the way I would think about the distinctive features of this conflict. 
There's also been a lot of conversation about kind of the geopolitical implications and in particular the position that China will take or not take. And um, much has been said about the call between President Biden and President Xi that apparently did not go super well. And really, China has so far refrained from outright criticism for Putin. Do you foresee a neutral China or will it be eventually forced to take a stance? And then what lessons is China learning from these sanctions if Beijing were to launch what many people believe is imminent and aggressive war against Taiwan? I don't uh, presume to know what did or did not happen on the Biden-Xi call. My experience from my times in government when I was on those calls is that it's a mistake to assume that what one hears in the press is exactly capturing the nuances of the situation right. So I think we all ought to maintain a fairly agnostic posture about where things are. I think China is in a very complex situation. China, like all countries, and the more remote a country is, the more we tend to forget this, is driven by its own imperatives, its own importance internal imperatives rather than by our imperatives and by our actions. China has a stake in a continued world order that has enabled it to flourish and prosper. That is put at risk by this kind of naked aggression. On the other hand, China has a stake in the success of more authoritarian models. China has a stake in seeing the United States taken down a peg in the world. China has a stake in having allies and Russia for all its problems remains a country with substantial resources and substantial capacity to project power. So a certain ambivalent ambiguity coming out of China is perhaps what is to be expected in circumstances like this. And I suspect that the Chinese will continue to maintain that ambivalent ambiguity for some time. Muni asked, part of her question was a little bit about lessons the Chinese may have learned or not learned about Western sanctions to to, to try to avoid aggression or to repel aggression. Um, is there, is there, is, are there lessons here for China? I think if you're sitting in China, the difficulty the Russians have had in Ukraine has to be pause giving. It has to be pause giving about the basic dynamics of a large external force confronting a highly motivated internal force. And it has to be pause giving in terms of the alacrity and the extent of the mobilization of an alliance. And so I think if one thought that if one was in China and previously thought that a move on Taiwan was possible and easy, the risks to that view 
have to have gone up rather substantially in light of these developments. Of course, from a Chinese perspective, I think it's very important to recognize that they see Ukraine as being a bordering country to Russia over which Russia has profound security interests and therefore substantial rights to shape the environment as the United States does in North America and as they see themselves as having in parts of Asia. They see Taiwan in a very different way, analogous to a broken apart Texas, if you like, to put it in American terms. So I think to over impute to them our tendency to analogize Ukraine and Taiwan would be a mistake. What do you think about the relationship between China and Europe? Because they, I mean, obviously China is not going to hesitate to continue a tense relation with the U.S., but what about Europe? Is there a kind of second thoughts on China if it decides to side with Russia and antagonize the rest of NATO? I think that that's very much unclear. Europe feels threatened by what is happening with Putin and is happening in the former Soviet Union in a way that it may not feel threatened over what happens in Asia, which is a long way away. And so what kind of alliances may form between the United States and Europe around dynamics in Asia are, I think, uh, rather less clear. On the other hand, to the extent that China is more clearly allied with Russia, they will be seen inevitably as more adversarial in Europe. And that is, I think, part of the calculus that the Chinese are going to have to weigh going forward. Let's pivot to inflation, which is now widespread. And, and it's not just the Russian oligarchs who are suffering economically from this and, and how long it can last. How do higher gas and commodities prices emanating from this war or becoming worse by this war, how do they play into the current economic situation? You've been quoted saying that high gas prices are the, the price of freedom or something to that, to that respect. Does a global recession also count as a price of freedom? Mooney, my view has always been that our basic security is our preeminent value. And if that meant that for a time we had to not eat in restaurants in order to contain pandemic, that's what it meant. If it means that we need to drive more fuel-efficient vehicles, to prevent the planet from becoming less habitable, that's what it means. And if it means to maintain some kind of world order that we are gonna have to accept higher taxes for more defense spending, or we are going to have to accept higher energy prices during a time of transition, I believe that that is a price that is much less than the Ukrainians are paying that is much less than previous generations have paid, and is much less than the price we can ultimately afford for what is 
most important, really, in the world. I do think that prior to the events in Ukraine, we had a serious inflation problem in the United States fomented by excessive deficits and excessive money printing during 2021. And I think the bottlenecks being created by what's happening in Ukraine, along with what's happening with COVID in China, is exacerbating uh, that inflation problem. And I think it's going to require an increasing policy focus going forward. So Secretary Summers, I I'd like to go back to the to the Russian people, and um, you know I have a uh, part here on the podcast, a column that focuses on youth and social justice. You mentioned, uh, which is very interesting, the political sort of like what what will happen between the Russian people and the Kremlin, and everyday Russians are terribly affected by these sanctions, and we've seen you know even children of these Russian oligarchs speaking out against the war, right? Calling it Putin's war. So can you describe for us the level of pain on everyday Russians and is it sustainable? And then if I can also ask, how do you expect the burden to worsen? Children have to see their parents unable to go to work. Better foods that families could once afford, they will no longer be able to afford. Rent on apartments or houses that families lived in will become unaffordable for many, leading to evictions. In some cases, uh, medical supplies on which health depends will become uh, unaffordable. Economic distress is real distress. And when economies fail, people get sick, people die, people get angry, People turn to violence. Life becomes nastier, more brutish, and brief, and uh, shorter. Experience uh, suggests that when sanctions are levied and goods are cut off, people are at first able to turn to inventories and draw down those inventories. Inventories of cash in order to spend inventories of foods in order to eat. And over time, the sanctions take a greater and greater toll. And so my expectation would be that the broad hunger of people in Russia will increase over time. And it's painful to be hungry. And as one gets hungry for longer, the pain goes up exponentially. There has been some attempts by Russia to retaliate against U.S. individuals such as President Biden and Secretary Clinton and others. Any comments on how this, this reciprocal retaliation, I mean, does it have any meaning at all? I don't think President Biden or other elite Americans were planning on Crimean vacations. I don't think they had chosen to hold their assets in Russian financial institutions. So I think this is a bit of symbolism to create a kind of false equivalence and parity between 
the stakes that so many in Russia have in the Western economy and the stakes that so few in the West have in the Russian economy. These sanctions that Russia is talking about levying are rhetorical rather than actual deeds. Secretary Summers, let me just end with a question, just let let your mind float. Take us through some scenarios as you think forward in the next weeks and months about what the outcomes of this war is. What, what does the world look like when we come out of this that's different from the way the world looks today? I think Russia is much more of an outcast nation. I think the European Union is a stronger and more historically serious alliance. I hope the United States is moved beyond its flirtations with populism and with divisiveness as it has seen the gravity of the complexity of the modern world. And I hope that China has absorbed stake that it has in their being an orderly world and has realized that, as I think we also need very much to realize, that international relations are not a zero-sum game and that bad for your adversary is not necessarily good for us and that China will appreciate that it needs to insist on respect, that it needs to insist on being involved in shaping the international rules of the road, but that it has a very strong stake in there being international rules of the road. Secretary Larry Summers, thanks for joining us on Altamar. Thank you. Peter, Dad, this was very interesting. And one of the things that really kind of struck at me was the fact that Secretary Summers really places a lot of responsibility on the United States and its internal and external position. And it's almost like he pivoted the responsibility into someone who's really right now not part of the picture. I agree. And, and you know, especially Europe is so hit by all of this, but yet he is focused on the U.S. and what the U.S. will do. And I think for me, it was my takeaway was, you know, how ordinary everyday people in Russia and of course in Ukraine and are just pawns in this big game, right? And they're the ones that are affected. Their savings are, you know, being completely depleted and, and they're being affected. And yet, you know, it's sanctions are really a potentially good way to get Putin to change course. Well, the only way without making it a shooting to make Putin change course. What I continue to be worried about, which I was surprised that he didn't talk about in terms of what happens in three months or a year or two years is, you know, we've lived in this globalized world for the last 25 years, and now we face the possibility of going back to a complete autarky in which each little section of the world becomes its own economic little section of the world. You know, China and parts of Asia will be that. Russia and other parts of 
its border areas are going to be its own autarky and the United States and Latin America and Western Europe are going to be their own. And that this globalized world that we've created these cheap supply chains and, and easy consumer access is now going to be disappeared under this sense that we all have to protect each other. And by protect each other means we can only supply from where the places that we trust and care about. And that's not going to be good for anybody. So we'll see where this ends up. Join us next time. But meanwhile, you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also sign up for our bi-weekly free newsletter for an analysis of global trends. See you next time.